Welcome, Diana Chapman Walsh. Thank You're you. here with us today, thanks to Alice Chang, a member of VPC and a Wellesley classmate. And we're so glad that she found you for us. Uh, you and I have already discovered that we have a mutual connection with the par work of Parker Palmer and the Center for Courage and Renewal. So Diana and I have much in common already. We have this shared belief that any significant conversation is a soul conversation. Mm -hmm. And we get to better and deeper and more connected answers when we take time to listen deeply to ourselves and to each other. So speaking of conversation, Diana, you moderated one momentous one earlier this year with the Dalai Lama and Greta Thunberg in January. And that's what drew Alice's attention to you uh, to speak to us today. I watched that interview and it reminded me that there is just still so much that I have to learn about climate change, both what's happening and also what can be done. So let's start with that interview. I wanna know how it came to be and what was it like for you? Fantastic. <clears throat> so before I respond, thank you. I, I love the way you described our commonalities. Um, and I also love the way you described the impact of that interview on you because that's exactly what we were hoping. The, the response you described of sort of realizing, whoops, there's a lot out there I don't know, and there's also a lot out there I can be doing. But I first want to give a kudos to you and to your congregation for doing this. So uh, from what you've said about the plans, they're pretty, pretty intensive, been a very hardworking committee, thinking about music and poetry and all kinds of multimedia ways to, to honor Earth Day. And it's such an important topic right now. It just couldn't be more, more important this year. We need this Earth Day to be the beginning, really, of a whole new revolution in consciousness about our relationship to planet Earth. It was, the first Earth Day was, this one needs to be on that scale, that much of an impact. <clears throat> and what we need to be doing, each of us, to try to promote a safe and healthy and socially just planetary future. And I think this COVID period has put a yellow marker to social justice for many of us as we've watched the way it has played out in the racial awakening. So um, our, our, our only home is the Dalai Lama's uh, new book, the title of his new book, Planet Earth, Our Only Home. It's a home we share with all of creation. I can use that word with you when I talk to scientific community. They get a little nervous that I call it creation. It is creation. However, we may think about that creative process yeah. that has landed us here, here and now. So how did it happen? How did it come to pass? I'll give you a sort of quick background on myself. You, if I'm going on too long, you make me hurry up. Um, so I left, I was president of Wellesley for 12 years and ended in 2007. Uh, and so then there was a period of kind of discernment. What do I do next? And many things flying by my radar screen. And I decided to take some time. I joined some boards. I joined boards of organiz nonprofit organizations whose work I, I admired, whose leaders I admired. Um, and one was the Mind and Life Institute, and they were the ones who sponsored this dialogue. It was founded years ago, 30, 30 some years ago, by the Dalai Lama with a, a, a Western neuroscientist to create a dialogue between these two great, great wisdom traditions about the human brain on the Western side the human mind on the Eastern side and to see what kinds of uh, new insights could come out of that interaction. It's been a fascinating story. It was fun to be part of it. I got to know the Dalai Lama pretty well, went to India a few times and spent time with him other places. 
Um, so I, I was on that board, also on the Massachusetts Institute of Technology board, MIT. And so, so in some ways, those are two ends of some spectrum, right? from the, the world of the spirit to the, <laughs> to the world of the of material, of technology and, and, uh, and action. Um, and other boards. And I was concerned about climate change. I decided that that was gonna be, whatever I did, I, that would be a through line for me. And that I would focus energy on it um, and teach myself about it. Because as you just described, there, there's so much to know and I hadn't been focused much on it while I was running a college. And I also wove the climate change theme in the, the speeches I was giving. And as you're a former president, you get invited to give many speeches and some of the audiences are pretty big. And so it was a way for me to learn it, to try to raise consciousness a little about that and to think about how to communicate about a topic that was polarizing and troubling. And in many cases, taboo. People weren't talking about it very much. That was hard. Keynote addresses, even a couple of commencements were <laughs> somehow woven in. But you know, it's interesting. It was hard. Uh, and the parents, I can see the parents sort of shutting down a little bit, but the kids, the young people were so relieved to have someone in authority actually talking about it. And I think that's an important thing for all of us to remember. That's what Greta Thunberg is all about. Please, 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 please pay attention to this because we can fix it and it's our future. Anyway, so I did that for a decade or so um, and was, as I say, very involved in MIT as they were upping their game on climate change. They've done a lot. A lot of universities have done a lot. There's a lot going on. We can feel good about that. And incubating this council on the uncertain human future, which was on a much smaller scale, of course, um, but is having a powerful impact, I think. So it was just this January that the Mind and Life Institute leadership, I'm not on the board anymore, enlisted me to help design and moderate this dialogue uh, between His Holiness and Greta. And what we wanted to do was call attention to a new emergency, this idea of the, of the feedback loops, but at the same time to link it to a hopeful possibility. It's one of the things we've learned, anybody who's thought deeply about this, about climate change, is if you just sound the alarm and, and terrify people, they'll shut down. There's even data that says um, if they don't see solutions, they're more likely to be climate deniers because it's a cognitive dissonance holding the reality and, and not believing that you can do anything about it. So, and there are many hopeful possibilities, right? So this was, the, this was what we were all about. So the, it's that if we act now to protect these natural systems, the forests in particular, woodlands, prairies, coastal wetlands, oceans, um, these ecosystems can continue to draw down from the atmosphere the greenhouse gases that are already there, the ones we've already admitted. And reducing our emissions now is, of course, vitally important, but there's a whole lot of stuff up there that has to come down, or we'll continue to see this weird weather that we're seeing now. That's baked in. So that's their function of these ecosystems. They sequester carbon, and it's really, really urgent that we preserve them so that they can continue to do their job. And that was the essence of this message. Uh, these are no regret solutions. They're not gonna backfire in our faces as some of the technological ones often do. They're not gonna cause harm. What they can do is increase soil moisture, cloud cover, crop yields, biodiversity, employment, human health, income, resilience. They, it's all on the plus side. So preserving the forest is a very big one and was featured a lot in the film. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm so impressed that on top of learning all of this and facilitating this conversation, one of the things that you've chosen to do is to start this council on the uncertain human future. And uh, I was able to go to the website and watch the film of, I think, one of maybe your first gatherings yes. uh, online. 
And it seems to take Parker Palmer's notion of circles of trust and applies it to how we live our life on this planet. So in addition to the fact that we can draw down carbon and we can make changes on our planet, there's also ways that, that we are with, with our planet. Um, so could you tell us more about that council? What, how yes. did it start and what's its purpose? Yes, uh, yeah, I'd love to, as you know. The, we started out, and you saw on the video, with an original group, 12 women, they were client activists and scholars. It didn't have to be all women, and it's not by any means anymore. Mary Evelyn Tucker at Yale was one of them. I know you've been looking at the journey of the universe. Mm -hmm. She's been Brian Swim's partner in that and, and very much a, a proponent of that. She's fantastic. Um, our intention for these councils is to hold a space for a very different conversation than the usual. One in which participants look deeply and, and personally into the reality of our situation as best we can understand it. They look at it with a steady gaze, creatively and with courage. And they do so in the company of others who are also ready to commit to this honest reckoning. To face the climate emergency and its implications for our lives, our work, our relationships, our commitments to face the uncertainty of our human future. The process we use draws from indigenous practice, a practice called the way of counsel. And it's the one we've all, many of us I'm sure have heard about it. In its traditional form, members pass a talking object, often it was referred to as a talking stick in the teepee, pass a talking object around the circle. In the film, you saw that glass orb uh, that we used. That was taken actually to the International Space Station in my honor by a Wellesley astronaut. So it, oh, cool. it shaped like a little mini earth. So that was a, a good one to use. Um, pass that around. When you're holding the object, you have the floor. You, it's, it's your turn to speak. And then you pass it to another and then you don't speak. So it's, it's a combination of speaking and silences and deep listening. COVID, and it was always intended to be done in person, COVID obviously drove us to Zoom. We weren't <laughs> sure it would work. We were a little worried. It actually works very well. So typically it involves four or five meetings each for two hours. That's how we tend to structure it. There are lots of other ways to do it. There's a skilled convener who guides the conversation and the conversation moves along a kind of arc with a series of prompts or questions. Um, and we look deeply into the issue. We face it fully and honestly. That's the essence. We slow down, we breathe. We often start with a very short meditation. We listen deeply, we become better listeners. We tune into the collective wisdom that resides within the whole. So we become better listeners as well as to ourselves, listening for the yearnings in our own hearts. And in our dissociated modern culture, this, tech, this technology, this council, way of counsel, which is ancient in origin, has the feel of a radically new social technology, oddly. It offers the rare gift, and you know it from the Parker Palmer work, the rare gift of an attentive and non-judgmental presence. And that is such a blessing and such a gift and draws out of people such depth um, and such extraordinary honesty um, that it always works. <laughs> we, we always don't, you know, if you can do that. So throughout, we're asking ourselves who we choose to be in the face of this emergency that we can no longer ignore because part of the, what happens as you start this process is you realize, I really can't look away from this. This requires my attention. So what can I do? Who can I be? And that's the question that I gather your congregation is asking itself this week. Last week, it was, what can I do? I think if I got that right. And this mm -hmm. week, it was, mm -hmm. importantly, who can I be? 
of course, so many people are addressing the science of climate change and what we can do. And we're happy to be learning along um, as well. But I think uh, for me, faith communities also can provide this space to ask that who question, um, just like your council is. Uh, we're speaking about our home. We're speaking about those that are on the margins. We're speaking about our collective capacity to heal. Um, and those are topics that faith should speak to um, at its very best. I'm curious if you'd share with us uh, what you've learned um, in addressing, just a little bit of what you've learned about addressing the who right. in this conversation. Great, yes. And I agree with you about faith communities. I, and I, many people have said and are saying, and I believe deeply, that we're not going to be able to address this crisis, this climate crisis, without a shift in consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly mm -hmm. the work that faith mm -hmm. communities are doing. So let me just answer first in reference to the, the council and how our sense of who we can be evolved out of that. So what we found is when we slow things down, we become more comfortable with the reality of what we know to be true and, what, and how real it is, but also with what we don't know, with the uncertainty of it. We accept the complexity of it and the paradox of being human and being vulnerable. Those are all beings, <laughs> be, be words. We accept those things in a new way. We learn to bridge and balance tensions. This is a Parker Palmer idea, to, mm -hmm. to see those tensions, to bridge and balance them without collapsing them in on themselves. So you hold both poles and you, you can find um, creative space in which they can open to wider possibilities if you, if you handle these tensions and, and don't run from them. We come to trust each other with what we see, hear, perceive, sense, intuit, the prompts sort of invite those kinds of things. What are you seeing? What are you sensing? What, are you, uh, what we feel, very much about what we feel, what we feel deeply. And so in that, we're kind of developing a richer and more nuanced collective understanding. I'm seeing this, you're seeing that over here. These are, and they, all these things kind of weave together. And then that serves as a, just a vivid reminder of something we can pay lip service to easily, but it's important to feel it. And that's our essential interdependence mm -hmm. with each other and with all living beings on this planet. So we pool our sorrows and fears, but equally our hopes and joys. We become not only wiser, but also less alone, more grounded, more empowered. And always coming back to this question of who we choose to be in the face of this situation. What can we be? So um, we saw, I don't want to take too much time, but just one example from MIT. We had at MIT, we weren't sure how it would go. This is a place of, of doers, this is engineers. So yeah, so um, th this bias toward action, toward seeing a problem and solving it dispassionately. Um, and we had a forum the other day and some of the people who've been part of it spoke and I was leading a, a little discussion and they admitted that at first they were reluctant to take their time out for this. They're busy, obviously it's faculty and it's a distraction. And plus they, 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 they feel that part of their role is to keep students kind of protected from too much fear. So they wanna keep students moving ahead with solutions and not, dwelling in, in, in the fear of it, the, the sadness of it. So they were sort of reluctant to do it, but then, um, then they began seeing the value and speaking of the value of connecting to one another in this more personal way, connecting to the larger community, feeling a sharper sense of responsibility to one another across the many silos and divisions. And one of them said, this is a quote, people emerged with a degree of healing. This is one who was at first very reluctant 
was so delighted to see people emerge with a degree of healing, which is not exactly an MIT word most of the time. They don't have a medical school. They don't talk to the <laughs> um, She said, followed by a wave of inspiration. You could almost see the wheels turning in people's minds. What can I do to help? She said she likes to think of the council as having launched a thousand ideas. So the what can I do to help and the wave of inspiration were propelled by the related question that everyone had been sitting with, which is, who am I? Who am I in this? What do I see? What do I feel? What do I hear? What do I value and what gifts do I have to bring? Beautiful. So these two things are connected, doing and being. And um, let's just end on that question. What can we do? Who can we be? And, and how are these connected? How do we move forward holding these two things with both hands? So I had, I thought of, I knew you were going to ask that. So what, uh, one, three things, three things. What, three can, things. what can one person do? Three things. First thing, one, one person can stop being one person. You've already got that knocked because you have your community and your congregation and aren't you lucky um, and but just knowing that that you are in this together and can be in this together so together you can establish practices that support you and making choices about who you want to be in it to be a person who is making connections who's sustaining connections who's welcoming welcoming in more and more people a second thing we all can do is to talk about the climate emergency call it a crisis it is an imminent threat be real and honest about it. There's one data point, 85% of Americans want 100% clean energy in surveys and, and, and only about 10% talk about climate change often. Mm -hmm. And that's still, that's a data point that hasn't moved. It's been that way for 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. People aren't talking about it because it's too painful and they don't really know where to go. But if we don't talk about it, we're not going to build the political will to address it in time. It's very, very clear. So we have to be, active in that way. The third thing, and it goes with the first two, is we can inform ourselves, we can learn. That was the powerful closing message from both Greta and His Holiness. Um, the opportunities to learn are nearly infinite and that can feel overwhelming, but there are many, many sources that are distilling information in very digestible chunks. It's all over the place. And on Thursday when we meet, I can talk about it, but they're really, really easy to get up and be self-taught on this a tremendous amount of resource. Um, <clears throat> so we can make all of that a priority. Learning about planet Earth, the journey of the universe as you're doing and our place in it, that will keep us mindful of the ways in which the choices we make will have ripple effects. And we need, and this is really important as we end, <clears throat> we need to acknowledge to ourselves the responsibilities we bear. And I think that's what makes it hard for some of us in the, situ the affluent situations in which many of us are, those of us on this call, um, the feeling of guilt and responsibility is very painful. And, and we Americans, we residents of California, this community, not all of us surely, but many of us. But it's, we need to be conscious of it, not in order to wear a hair shirt or to wallow in guilt. That's not at all helpful. It's counterproductive. Mm -hmm. But to hold in awareness how much what we do can matter. Mm -hmm. There was a philosopher on one of our MIT councils who's teaches ethics of climate change at MIT. And he talked about how painful it is for him to admit to himself that his comforts and pleasures come at the expense of millions of other people. And yet that's a reality. So we can't look away from the, Jonathan Kozol called it savage inequalities in the educational mm -hmm. system. There are savage inequalities 
and the impact mm -hmm. climate change is already having on our fellow mm -hmm. residents of this planet. How we've been exporting our pollution from the fossil fuel economy into sacrifice zones that have now been identified that are occupied predominantly by black, brown, indigenous, and poor people. There's lots of research on that. We have a responsibility to them and we need to hold it in awareness. <clears throat> it's easy to blame big oil and the fossil fuel industries and industrial agriculture, and there are a lot of bad actors there and they need to be held to account for sure. Um, and we should focus our political energies actually on, on exposing them. But, um, but it, in the end, it's all about paying attention, I think. Someone once said, attention is a form of love. Mm -hmm. We can all be environmentalists, in fact, must be now. People who pay attention, people who have made a commitment to be loving stewards of the planet and protectors of the future, to bring as much love and compassion and gratitude into the world as we possibly can every single day, to build connections and large connections, stay in connection with self, with others and with the planet we all share that we can do and that we can be. Well, I'll say amen, which probably those people don't say at the end of your <laughs> conversations very often. But uh, thank you for being with us in this and helping us pay attention and, and to be uh, in a different way in these conversations and to continue to hold the tension and move forward with hope. Um, so thank you, Diana, for joining us today and um, peace be with you. <laughs> thank you, Jenny. I'm glad I met you. This has been a real treat. Thank you. you. Yes, Bye. take care. Along with the stars and the oceans, we can consider what we make with our hands as a way to reflect on human destiny. Our urge to make things, to create things, is certainly as deep as the urge of the sun to shine and the earth to spin. Our destiny is woven into the mystery of creativity and time. We are in the midst of vast destruction but it is simultaneously a moment of profound creativity. We are involved with building a new era of Earth's life. Our human role is to deepen our consciousness and resonance with the dynamics of the 14 billion year creative event in which we find ourselves. Our challenge now is to construct livable cities and to cultivate healthy foods in ways congruent with Earth's patterns. Our role is to provide the hands and hearts that will enable the universe's energies to come forth in a new order of well-being. Our destiny is to bring forth a planetary civilization that is both culturally diverse and locally vibrant, a multi-form civilization that will enable life and humanity to flourish. <laughs>